Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. Hey, we're here. I'm Carl Franklin, and the reason I didn't say welcome back to .NET Rocks is because this is sort of like a simulcast between .NET Rocks and the .NET Show. So... Welcome to whatever show you happen to be watching or listening to. <laughs> That's not confusing <laughs> at all. <laughs> no, not at all. How are you doing, Richard? I'm all right. I'm, uh, you know, doing doing the thing. We, of course, it's the uh, midwinter here and it's freezing cold and the furnace packed it in a couple of days ago. So, Oh, nice. We've been using little space heaters to warm things up, and which is fine. We're, we're warm enough, but space heaters are noisy. So I ran the space heater in the studio to get it to a decent temperature and then took it out. Well, yeah, I mean, wintertime is the worst time to call up the furnace repair guys because they love trudging out in the winter, and they're not busy at all. They're not busy at all. You know, no. Oddly enough, most people don't care if their furnace is broken in the summertime. How are you doing, Mark Miller? Uh, I'm doing great, but I'm just suddenly now uh, painfully aware that the temperature around Richard is going to be gradually cooling as we do this uh, show. That's right. <laughs> so you hear a little teeth chatter. We'll see what happens with that. From the Canadian direction. Um, I did have a snowfall background, but then I saw the purple in your backgrounds and for the people watching the .NET show. Right. Um, so I changed to a purplish, bluish background, there too. There you go. We're all, we're all doing the purple thing. I've come to appreciate that purple LEDs show up well on modern cameras, where a lot of other colors do not show up that well. That's right. That yeah. is, today I learned. That's awesome to know. How you know, did you well, not I, know that with the color of your mustache in in goatee? Well, <laughs> he's talking about LEDs though, and I, you know, I, I, uh, my daughter used to uh, dance on stage before COVID, and they used to have this dance in Costa Rica where they would light it and they would put all these really obnoxious red and blue LED lights going back and forth alternatingly on, and yeah. you couldn't get any quality video of the kids dancing. Right, it was just absolutely crazy. Yeah, so I just I put these together with the purple. I'm just thinking purple LEDs. Those are for me now. Awesome. <laughs> well, that was enough chit chat. Let's get started with better know framework. All right, dude. What do you got? Uh, so this one is um, Blazor Train, believe it or not, which is appropriate because Blazor is sort of the the high tech meaty goodness uh the latest f- from dot net mm-hmm. and um so episode 68 actually i had my friend chris sainty from the uk back to talk about dockerizing your blazer apps so this was a uh, by request people were like how do i do this with docker how do i put a blazer app in docker 
So we did all three types of Blazor applications. I say we, Chris did. Right. Uh, Blazor server in a Docker container. Uh, Blazor WebAssembly in a Docker container, which is, you know, has its own challenges. And then a, a WebAssembly hosted in a Docker container. So it's a good show. And uh, if you want to go there, this is episode 1781. So go to 1781.pwop.me, plop.me. That'll take you right there. Awesome. So that's what I got. Richard, is somebody talking to us today? Absolutely. I grabbed a comment off the .NET Rocks episode 1500, which is a show we did about the history of .NET, which may be appropriate today. Yeah. Uh, And it's interesting to think that we're almost at 1800, and we were talking about the history of .NET in 1500, and I still haven't finished the damn book. Oh, well, it's <laughs> going to be a hell of a book. It's uh, yeah. I hope I, I hope I measure up to the sheer amount of time I put into it anyway. Yeah. And uh, this comment comes from Joel, and again, this comment's from four years ago now. Wow. Uh, where he said, "I really enjoyed the show, and it was interesting to hear the bits of history that I hadn't heard before, which is certainly what's happening to me gathering this whole story." Mm. Sometimes, as a developer, you have your head down and mind in the code, and I and don't stop to think about where you are or how you got there. I didn't start working with .NET until early 2005, which is a good time to start. That was in the .NET 2 era, uh, when I got into college. And .NET 2 was pretty new then, and it was a blast to work with. Although, to be fair, we started with VB.NET and didn't get into C Sharp until my last semester, semester, which Mm -hmm. is not a bad thing. You know, the both language is perfectly viable. I haven't touched WinForms in a long time. But back when I was actively doing .NET development, I thought it was an awesome set of tools to work with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sidebar here, still is. Still is. Like, yeah. You forget how rapid application development WinForms is until you go back and spend a little time with that designer. Sure. There are two things that you guys didn't mention, though, that are tangentially related. XNA and Windows Phone. I'm sure you could easily do a show on the history of each of these if you haven't already. But it's interesting to hear the parallels in some of these technologies. For example, how XNA was awesome. When it was announced, mm-hmm. allowing you, this was the Xbox technology. It allows you to run .NET code yeah. in, inside of an Xbox 360 without right. using the dev kit at all. Like normally, if you want to develop for a video game machine, you need to buy this pretty expensive dev kit. And here yeah. it was, you know, just write your code and off it goes. Uh, but it slowly withered away in a sense the same way Silverlight did. No, nah, I don't think that's true. Not quite, it, no. You know, un, unlike Silverlight, the XNA guy said, hey... XNA is going away. Nobody yeah. ever said that about Silverlight. It just stopped. Yeah, Steve Jobs said it, actually. Well, Steve did, but <laughs> Microsoft never did, right? Yeah, yeah. And the same sort of thing with Windows Phone. 7 felt rushed. 7.1 was an improvement, then 8 and 8.1.1, and then silence, although there's a timing there because there was a Windows 10, a Windows Phone mm-hmm. 10, and it had its own problem as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I am looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. <sighs> Am I going to include XNA? I haven't so far. That's uh, part of the history. That's for yeah, sure. And so is Windows Phone. There's so many tangents. And of course, the early versions of WinPhone were Silverlight, right? They were a modified version of Silverlight right, for right, 7.1. Right. Eight was more like, uh, it's far more customized and it got more stable. Ten was UWP. Mm. It really was a rewrite. It was still XAML, but it was literally a different implementation of XAML. So it's a big change. One thing I remember about Windows Phone is the Nokia hardware was so good. Yeah, absolutely. Even rivaling what we're using today and the um the the UI of the the contact centric UI. Oh yeah. Of never the been duplicated. 
hasn't been even attempted. So I just moved to a Pixel 6 from my Pixel 4 and still haven't coaxed the phone into allowing names to be attached to SMS messages yet. I just yeah. have phone numbers. Like it's that sort of please. Like why is this so difficult? If Microsoft came out with an Android shell that had the Windows Phone UI on it, I would snag that up in a minute. Because there is a Microsoft launcher for Win for Google phones, for, for Android phones, but it is not the Windows Phone shell. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Joel, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Go By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Go By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And you comment there and I read it on the show. We'll send you a copy of Music to Go By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. And don't worry, because it's not pixel-based. <laughs> it's vector-based. There you go. No pixel perfect here. Actually, it isn't. The only vector with Twitter is between sending the tweet and receiving it. <laughs> There's Delta yeah. in there somewhere. All right. We're talking about 20 years of .NET with Mr. Mark Miller, who was there since before the beginning. All of us grew up with .NET and you know, precede it. Our careers precede it. So uh, we've already said hi to Mark. Uh, I don't know, Mark, do you want to introduce yourself formally or should I give you an introduction with your bio or? Uh, you know, I can say hi to kids. I'm Mark sure. Miller. I work at, I work at DevExpress. Uh, I manage the Code Rush team, uh, but DevExpress does lots of things, controls, yes. frameworks, things like that. Um, you know, the, I guess the thing that that uh, that we do the best, I think, is is focus, maintain focus on high quality. I think that's what we do pretty well, and uh, and essentially make developers faster, to make developers uh, uh, their their products more beautiful. Yeah, that's for I, sure. I can tell two stories about you, Mark, from the early days uh, when we first met in the middle '90s at the Dutch conference, the SDGN. And uh, you were a Delphi guy through and through back then, Ray Kanopka and yep. all those great folks. And and I was teaching Visual Basic, it's, you know, just before .NET. And so I remember at one point on uh, the the speakers tour, right? That show would always take us out for a day after the conference and show us parts of the Netherlands we haven't seen before. It was great mm -hmm. fun. And you said, and you're like, you know, Campbell, you're kind of a nice guy. Why don't you come <laughs> over from the dark side and join the <laughs> Delphi ranks? I, I may have said that. That's true. Yeah. I actually remember being in a conference room before that with someone who I'm pretty sure was you, Richard. Mm -hmm. Um, and because he looked like you, and because of the answer he gave me to my problem, which I'm pretty sure was you. But I remember I'm like, I'm, you know, as usual, whenever I talk at conferences, I'm all, almost always, I've got extra hardware. I've got, you know, plugging in things at the last minute. Mm -hmm. I'm, I've got two projector screens. I'm just pushing the limits, right, in some crazy socially irresponsible way. And, uh, and I'm in the speaker room and something I'm not able to boot up or I've got a problem with the hard disk and something like that. And the guy who I'm pretty sure is Richard Campbell turns to me and he says, well, that sounds like that's your problem. 
And I'm like, <laughs> what? That sounds, that sounds like a you problem. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like it's a you thing. Now, I, I can't tell for sure because I hadn't met Richard Campbell yet. But later when I met him and he keeps talking about the first time he remembers me, I keep thinking, you son of a gun. You were you there. Know, what's, what's really funny about that answer is he actually knew how to fix your problem. I know. <laughs> I know. He, he knew it. He knew. I still don't know how to solve that problem, and he still knows how to solve it. And then there's a little conversation Richard had with himself. Wait, should I just solve his problem, or no? Should I be funny? No, I think (laughs) I think he he was like. I actually kind of feel like his thought process was like, oh, somebody needs help, and then he turns, and his next thought is, look at that dork. Look at that dork over there. Or maybe I'll have a cup of tea. (laughs) It would be outrageous to help a dork right now. I don't know. I could be wrong. Although the set, my second story is the moment you, when .NET was coming out, and you're like, "Huh, I'm thinking about changing teams." Well, that's you're true. an Anders Hosberg fan, right? Because yeah, that's also true. You, what you could argue that I've stayed, you know, on the light side the entire time, right. and that ultimately Richard Campbell came over, you know, from the dark side and switched over. But and the, but, and the but, light yeah. is Anders Hosberg, apparently. Right. Exactly. Well, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's. I'll tell you, there's a strong correlation between like uh, a, a beautiful language design and his presence at a particular company, hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, I can't argue Delphi, with that. Funny, Delphi was had a beautiful design to it, and uh, and and C Sharp is like getting, I think, crazy good. Yeah. Like I, you know, in I think in this last release from Microsoft, both in Visual Studio and in C Sharp, I'm seeing like kind of a just a leapfrog uh from where they normally do normally they they come out and here's an incremental here's an incremental thing here's some feature mm. here, here's the design and i would look at it and i'd be like okay it's it's incremental and it's small but i feel like with uh vs 2022 mm. they have reached really far and and while everything is not maybe as perfect and as polished as uh as it's going to be right it's the the answer is it's going to be right Right. you can see it they are they are like it's almost like yeah it's 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 metaphorically a little bit like a foot has stepped on the moon right if you want to go back in time right they've done they've just done a number of remarkable achievements they're focused on i think it feels like they're focused on on uh simplicity of code uh on 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 helping you write the code out you know, faster. I just think they're yeah. doing a, I, I just think that team is doing a, has done a really good job in the, in the, in the last whatever year or so that they've been working on this. I got two comments. First of all, loving the, the sort of minimalist approach, as you said, you know, removing cruft, um, making uh, any kind of application, just a few lines and be able to, to work, hiding all the using statements, for example, that you're going to use, you know, and it, Turning on null checking uh, by default in right. Visual Studio. Just wonderful things. But also going back to what you said, I remember checking out Delphi in the VB days because you couldn't help it. If you were using VB4 at the time, it was really slow because of hardware at the time, you know, and everybody was like, oh, we want it to be compiled. We want it to be compiled. And the Delphi people were like, hmm, I'm not having that problem. Because it was yeah. like a compiled language, so but VB4 was also the 1632 split, and the redoing of the VBXs into OCXs, and 
Yeah, it, it was. was. The, all, it was the commification of VB, and it was slow. It took yeah, a beat. So, so getting back to the story, I was checking out Delphi, but the thing that kind of turned me off, or, or not turned me off, but I wasn't used to, was the way that the event handling worked. There was always the sender object and then the arguments class, right? I don't remember what they were called, but when .NET came around, I totally recognized that pattern from Delphi. And that's probably a direct result of, of Anders. Sure. Yeah, no, I think there's, I think there's a lot there. I, 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 I also think, by the way, you know, as long as we're talking about, you know, folks who are doing amazing work, um, uh, Chuck Jasky is also, he was like number two over at Borland, um, under Anders. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and if you look also at his work, as he moves from place to place, right? You start you start seeing you know similar kinds of correlations and trends hmm. between high quality, right? Those two work together at Borland. I, I'm not. I don't think they work together as closely at uh, at Microsoft. I don't know, but um, but but you kind of have this sense that that both are focused on quality, hmm. and I think to some to, to a large degree simplicity of implementation. Simplicity of what is delivered as well, and uh, and I think it's good. I think it, I, th I think it's good. Our friend Lino Tadros was also there, um, right? I don't, I'm not sure what he was working on. Maybe it was Turbo Pascal. Uh, I'm not sure either. Uh, but I think that that's probably safe and fair to say that he was. Yeah. It was probably Delphi, actually. I think. Um, yeah. I think maybe both, but I'm not sure. I don't yeah, recall sure. when he left exactly. But certainly he was instrumental there. Because he's been wildly successful since, you know, and yeah. uh, also a brilliant developer. Lino's story is that he started out in tech support for Delphi, okay, and, then, and got pulled, and then got pulled into the engineering team. Which, it's not that unusual, you know. It's funny. Tech support is a great place for people to learn a product, but also to learn where customers' pain lives. Yeah. Right. Like, it's a great point. It's one of the metrics that when, when, you know, as I'm often in the case of evaluating an organization, it's mm. how it grows its people. And a, and a really great tech support org is a farm for, for folks to go elsewhere inside of the company. Yeah. You know, it's, it's generally yeah. you spend a couple of years of tech support and then you'll move into engineering or product management or something like that. Uh, because and you have a deep understanding of the product from the customer perspective. That that's exactly where I started. Actually, mm. I I started in the whole world of programming at a little company in New York that uh, was making MIDI software for DOS, MIDI Sweet. music software sequencer. And I didn't know anything about. I you know I'd done a little C. It was a little overwhelming. Um, and I started in tech support there. And then they actually got me to start creating structures in C for. Um, MIDI system exclusive information that was particular to each instrument. So we would get these instruments in on loan. We would have to pull out the the manual and I would create the structure based on the spec. So anyway, that's where I started. And, and then I went to Crescent Software, which was all about Visual Basic. And I was in tech support there. And Richard, man, you're right. It's You really learn how to you, – you get the empathy of feeling yeah. the pain of the customers. And when it doesn't go right, you know, you're on their side when you talk to the engineers. Right. I would agree with that. And the other thing I, I would point out as well is it changes the way you write code, mm. right? If you spend any time doing documentation or anything that faces the customer, like tech mm -hmm. support replies, things like that, 
right? You start to learn what takes a long time to explain. Yeah. And as you're writing code, you start to think about, okay, how long will it take to document this? How long is it going to take to, you know, to support this if we don't tell people what's going on right now in this moment? If we don't somehow give them some discoverability. So I just think it makes you a better developer, right? To spend time in these other supporting areas, right? It makes you more mindful of, okay, sure, we can get a product out and we can get it in a lot of people's hands, but we can end up losing money because the tech support burden is too high, right? Right? Or people are returning it because they don't understand it and they don't like it, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it's also a great mechanism. And I think it, you, you, some tech support orgs are really good about saying, here is our number one call item. Like, let's get this on the work list for reducing number of calls around this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've also seen some architects great about going to tech support and saying, where's your biggest pain point right now? Like, let's make sure it's in the pipeline because, mm-hmm. you know, the business of software, making money on software is both that sales and reducing cost of support. Right. It's all encompassing. Yeah. It's not and- just getting the feature working. Yeah, but the but the being and the and also the feature utilization, right? Like it's sh- stop having a party when you ship it. Start having a party when you can see the people are using it. Right, Mark. I want to ask you this question. Um, this is probably a good. We could do this before the break. I think we have enough time. Mm-hmm. Tell me about how you got involved with Dev Express and therefore in .NET. I know our mutual friend Richard Morris hired you, who also happened to save both of our lives quite honestly. Oh, that's uh, true. Yeah. Well, I was, I had my own company. It was called Eagle Software uh, at the time. And I was creating and making Delphi, uh, Codrush for Delphi uh, on my own then. And uh, Richard Morris and uh, uh, and I were started talking about what we were going to, you know, about the possibility of maybe coming over to DevExpress. Um, you know, I was looking you know, this is around the time that I told Richard Campbell, I'm thinking about going to the dark side, I think is what I said to him or something <laughs> like that, right? Uh, I'm thinking about going over and switching over, you know, because because .NET's coming out, that sort of mm. thing. And uh, and basically, DevExpress made me an offer uh, that included uh, a team of like, I think, uh, 11 plus developers, right? Working on working on Code Rush and helping us get over to uh, uh, .NET and... Mm. Uh, and, and, did, and did DevX have Delphi products at the time? Uh, yeah, I think they did. Yeah. They started with controls for Delphi. At the As time. a matter of fact, I but think they still support it. They do. They're the, yeah. the VCL controls. Yeah, so they mm-hmm. still support those Delphi controls. Um, yeah, and so one of the components of that, I think I may have told you guys a story before, but it was a kind of interesting development story, is that one of the components of that is uh, I rented a, an apartment in Las Vegas and I started uh, rotating the devs in to live in that apartment for a few weeks at a time while we were writing code. It was like, that's cool. you know, it was, it was kind of like a dorm room almost, except for we were writing code. And I was obnoxious. Dustin Campbell was there, by the way. He's, he's at Microsoft <laughs> on the Visual Studio team now. But yeah. he was there. And I remember on the weekend, they'd be out by the pool and I'd be like, you guys have no commitment to the project. What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? What did you do today? You were gone for like, we were like seeing a movie, you know? Some movie came out, something like that. Green Lantern, yeah. I don't know. And I was like, yeah, get back in there and get to work. So... <laughs> Mark Miller, Taskmaster. Yeah. So um, that was, they were doing mostly VB controls, right, at the time? Uh, no, they were doing, they were doing Delphi controls. 
and they were sw- decided they wanted to switch over to uh, to to support .NET. That I was, swear that was I move. saw. Okay, I swear I saw that they had VB stuff. I don't. Maybe it was just yeah. No, I think they might have had some ActiveX things for a moment, yeah, maybe. for a brief moment during okay. the transition. They may, might have targeted VB stuff, but I think my understanding is that the the essence of all of that is that they were supporting .NET development with controls for yeah. both VB developers and C sharp developers. That was what's really interesting, you know, from historical perspective, looking back now, that there were companies, you know, like Crescent Software, right, that got bought by Progress. See what I said there, Progress, Richard. I did that for you. Nice. Uh, that got caught by uh, bought by Progress Software, and uh, the there was others that were you know VB centric, and they had all these COM controls, and I would venture to say that you know they they started they had a bit a very difficult path moving from COM to .NET, and so they had to you know because of backward compatibility and stuff, you know the right. folks like Dev Express. We're, we're pretty much starting fresh and, you know, building .NET controls. And you don't, you don't hear as much from the other companies these days. Right. Well, you know, part one of the transitions that occurred at that time that actually DevExpress was pretty smart about, I think, or at least in retrospect, they, they, they took the lead on it and everybody else either had to follow that lead or they had to, you know, fade away. And, and the lead was essentially to make the decision that when you bought the controls, you would also get the source code. And that was yes. up to that point. That was something that did not happen, except at Crescent. Crescent Software was always giving the source code. The problem was it was mostly an assembler. <laughs> that is a little scary. It's a little scary, but potentially fast, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. If you were building stuff, if you're building OCXs back then, like you know, it was pretty low level stuff. It was you didn't write it in VB. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, and I mean, it, you talk about the evolution of .NET. And here we are, twenty years in, and how well it's thriving. Hmm. Part of it is that they rewrote the underpinnings, right? That we have a new modern frame ver, implementation of the framework and the language. You know, Ro, Roslyn was a reboot, effectively, of the language. Admittedly, with for the most part, almost perfect backward compatibility. Hmm. But they really did get a chance to rewrite the language. Most of the time, we would have made a new language by now. You know, Visual Basic, beginning to end, 1991 to 1999. It's eight years. And it feels like a long time, but it was only eight years. And here we are mm. 20 years in, and it doesn't feel that long, ago, long really, because they've done such a good job of, of keeping it contemporary. I would totally agree with that, especially with the recent changes. I'm just, I'm looking just through, through the changes in the language. I'm just like, just thinking, good job, good job, good job, mm. right? I remember I was at a I was at a conference in uh, it was like a language conference in San Francisco I think, and Mads Torgerson was there, and I gave one of these impromptu where you go up and you speak for like I don't know 15 minutes or something like that, and it was on the science of good design of programming languages, and mm. I remember remember being up there and I started giving an example about how uh, good ways to uh, cast an expression. And bad ways. And so I showed the effective way. And then as I'm starting to show the bad way that requires way too many parens, Mads realizes I am 
about to talk about C sharp and he starts sinking down. <laughs> he so, also knows that you're right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's that aspect of it as well. Right. You can do it with fewer parens is, is essentially yeah. my argument, but I, I almost, I don't know if that was, that was, you know, at all influential or pivotal, but I lo- would love to think that that opened up eyes in that presentation and people started thinking, okay, how can we use less in the language? Um, regardless of how they got from point A to point B, I think I love point B. I think point B is is beautifully done. Knowing Mads, I'm guessing that he was also thinking the same thing and was probably actively changing it. But um, this is the point in the show where we got to take a little bit of a break. So guys, hold on while we pause for this very important message. You know, time is of the essence when identifying and resolving issues in your software. And our friends at Raygun are here to help. Their brand new alerting feature is now available for crash reporting and real user monitoring to make sure you're quickly notified of the errors, crashes, and front-end performance issues that matter most to you and your business. Set thresholds for your alert based on an increase in error count, a spike in load time, or new issues introduced in the latest deployment, along with custom filters that give you even greater control. Assign multiple users to ensure the right team members are notified with alerts linked directly to the issue in Raygun, taking you to the root cause faster. Never miss another mission-critical issue in your software again. Try Raygun alerting today and create a world-class issue resolution workflow that gives you and your customers peace of mind. Visit raygun.com to learn more. Their simple usage-based plans start from as little as $4 per month with unlimited apps and users. That's raygun.com to start your free 14-day trial. Uh, we're back. It's .NET Rocks, and Richard Campbell is here. Howdy. And Mark Miller is here. We're talking about the history of .NET, but uh, we're really focusing on Through the Eyes of Mark Miller, who has been here since the beginning. Um, we can't have a show on you know the history of .NET without talking about .NET's dark years. And is it safe to say that Steve Sinofsky is the uh, Lord Vader of the uh, the Sith movement that attempted to uh, um, turn .NET into JavaScript? What do you think, Richard? Is that a weird metaphor? It's a weird metaphor, and, and he didn't try and do that, uh, per se. I mean, I think Sanofsky's concern was that uh, he believed in the idea that there were Windows developers. Yeah. Right? And often people who lead certain products, like I remember when there was a group of folks at Office that were looking for Office developers. Yeah. Right? It's just that that's not how developers think, right? You generally ask a developer, you know, what do you do? Uh, you know, what kind of development you do? They usually speak about their language. Their language right? and their tools, they're, yeah. They're a Delphi developer. But you, you, they, you don't hear them say, I'm a Visual Studio developer. They say, mm-hmm. I'm a C-sharp developer working right. in studio. Uh, you know, that's sort of the tone. And so as soon as you associate a product like that with a developer, like you're making a false assumption about what a developer is. And so yeah. I think um, Sanofsky's concern was that he believed that there was a, such a thing as a Windows developer and that they had become .NET developers, mm. that that was a problem. Uh, and what he was really doing was... I mean, He's trying to sell really, Windows. He, he was always concerned about saving and protecting Windows. Remember, he's the guy who cleaned up the Vista mess. Right. Right. That's his claim to fame. He was an office guy. 
And when Jim Alchin fell on the sword for Vista, which was not Alchin's fault, but he did right. fix it and take the hit for it, for better or worse, um, Steven Sanofsky stepped into that breach and made Win 7, which is a beloved version of Windows. Great, I mean, there's, great there's version. two ways about that, right? Yeah. Uh, and then the iPad appeared, and he saw that as an existential threat. And so now he and had it to, was it was it? They that's a great well, they, question. It was because the Microsoft didn't really have a good way to develop any way really to develop uh, apps for iOS devices, and it well, was either what we ended up with now, which took a, a long time, or. The JavaScript approach. Well, one would argue Microsoft still doesn't have a great way to make iOS applications. But the Microsoft had been dabbling in tablets for a long time, right? They had made various kinds of tablets well before that. True. And as they had with phones, right? They had been making phones for a long time. Then the iPhone appears in 2007, is, you know, soundly mocked, and then takes over the market. Because right. it is... The, the final manifestation of the smartphone. I mean, fundamentally, smartphones yeah. have not changed since 2007. They're a slab of black glass. They have been ever since. Sometimes they're bigger, sometimes they're smaller, sometimes they have one camera, two cameras, three cameras. Wow, that's too many cameras. Like, But really, that's all it is, right? It's the end of the path. We've had more or less the same phone for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Microsoft's dabbling in tablets for years, expensive devices. The you know You saw me. I had one of the motion computing devices and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And then the iPad comes out. It's beautiful. And the iPad is cheap, right? Remember the time. Relatively. If you go back to 2010, when the iPad first appears, the race for the $500 laptop is on, right? And to get right. a laptop down under 1000 bucks, it's got to be made of plastic, super cheap parts. It's mm. bulky. Like, they're horrible machines. And then yep. the iPad comes out, and it's 800 bucks, And it's gorgeous. Yeah. Right. It's stunningly beautiful. And everybody's like, put a keyboard on it, which they didn't initially, initially wanted to do, but eventually did. But that's the threat there was we've been trying to do tablets for ages. They've already eaten our lunch on the phone side. Mm -hmm. They're going to do this again. Right. You know, and I just set that as the stage for why they reacted so strongly. You just yeah, got it's the understandable. Windows ship righted. It's understandable, but you know we we have to tell that story of of build, you know that yeah, build where tie, it was all about let's Windows tie it 8. Back to the .NET side of this, okay? Right. So now you understand. I just said that as context. That's why they're freaked out, and they're trying to yep. make a tablet version of Windows. We have to address the tablet issue in Windows, right? Then there's thoughts on Flash, right? Jobs puts out his letter, which mm -hmm. fundamentally under the hood is Flash is killing batteries in iPads, and that is yep. unacceptable, right? And admittedly, Flash wasn't such a crappy piece of software. It would not have it would not have been a problem. And the way to solve it was to banish the plugin. And again, the issue around plugins was a real issue. It, you know, they were every one of us doing tech support for family had somebody whose address bar in their browser had been replaced by an exploit plugin. Yeah, right? that was the norm, and and banishing plugins actually solved this problem, but it also murdered Silverlight. Yeah, uh, and at that point, Microsoft, you know, the sin of micro of of the death of Silverlight is not that Jobs killed Silverlight. The sin is Microsoft's response to that. Right, right. That's what people are to this day still upset about. Uh, because largely they didn't respond because they were focused on this existential threat around tablets. 
And so Sanofsky's view of the landscape as a non-developer, right, as someone who really was about creating these big products, said, well, if we cannot run .NET on iOS, because his only view of running .NET on iOS was Silverlight, then we need uh, a common programming. There's there's going to be a common programming platform, and that common programming platform is JavaScript. And the one thing you cannot program JavaScript, uh, you, you cannot program with JavaScript, is Windows. Right. And that's the drive for WinJS hmm. is we have to allow recognizing that JavaScript's going to win. And look, guys, it's 2022. It's still look pretty freaking popular. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the way I perceive it these days is if you are a project lead who has an opportunity to decide on language, you don't have an existing dev team that already has a set of skills and so forth. You get to pick on a greenfield app, which doesn't happen that on. You have to have an answer for why aren't you writing this in JavaScript, mm-hmm. right? Like you don't have to have an answer for why aren't we writing this in Delphi. Not that I have anything bad to say about Delphi, but it's like when you talk about available resourcing, tooling, and skills, JavaScript is right there, right? But and but so- therein lies a real problem. And you're, I know you're going to mention this next, but I want to take over the because uh, <laughs> that's what I do sometimes. Um, so the problem is that, you know, when you write an application in JavaScript, it's for a browser. And that same JavaScript, in theory, now it's the truth, but in theory back then would run uh, effectively the same on every kind of browser that people are using. It took a while for us to get there, admittedly. Well, it's, and but, it's still but, not true, right? It's you still, still have not to true, write if Safari code. Very rarely, though. I mean, but but here's the thing. you, you The problem was that you can't just take a JavaScript app with HTML written for the browser and just recompile it into a Windows application. You just can't do that. You don't have access to Windows services. You don't have access to the things that Windows does, you know? And so that, I think, was also a problem. Well, and, and, and WinJS was supposed to address that. Um, but, and, and, you know, now you get into the story of 2011. You and I yeah. at the first build conference, yeah. right? And I'm pretty sure it was me that said as we walked out of a conference, the premier developers conference for my, from Microsoft, where they hadn't talked about .NET and said, at dude, all. what if .NET doesn't rock? Yeah, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Does .NET still rock? That's, <laughs> yeah. That was really a, a kind of a scary moment for well, us. We, yeah, kind of branded the show. <laughs> Yeah, I remember people were telling us in comments and tweets and stuff. So you're going to call it WinFX Rocks or what yeah, was the WinRT what was the, Rocks? WinRT Rocks. I, by the way, just renewed that domain name. WinRT Rocks. Oddly enough, registered in 2011. So you guys at Dev Express, Mark, were you know part of that whole history. You were at what that was show. going on? What was going on at Dev Express during those years? Uh, so, well, from my, so what are we, what are the years that we're talking about? We're talking about 2010, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2012. Yeah. I think I was so focused on working on, you know, building stuff in code rush that, uh, I, I wasn't paying attention to what was happening outside of that. Yeah. I think that one of the things that I've, that I've noticed in terms of trends is that there's, uh, a lot of effort and focus on what's coming 
And uh, one of the things that we'll, we'll often do at DevExpress is we'll create like uh, a free component set for whatever the new framework is or architecture that's coming along the way. Right. Uh, put it out there and get a sense of what, you know, what's the grab ratio between people that are interested in the new technology versus what's already out there that we're selling. You're doing that for Maui right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing that, one of the things that's interesting about it is that the voices, I think, are always louder for the new tech. But the numbers are, are always you know, a fraction oh, of folks totally that, are, that are spending money, mm. right, where they're well, spending money. So we, we tend to step in, you know, in a, in a way that matches the, the demand, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, the, the problem is that folks who are professional storytellers or, or, or quote unquote influencers uh, need a new thing because the new thing represents income. Right. The, uh, the, the first people to get a plural site course out, the first people to, you know, put those materials together, the first books, so forth, that's all money. Hmm. And so, and they have the largest, uh, loudspeaker. So, of course, a small number of people put that out. I'll give you another Sanofsky story that it squeaks to that exactly. One of the first times I ever saw Stephen Sanofsky, uh, was at an event, it was at a Microsoft event and he was talking about Dr. Watson and, the new monitoring that was going on inside of Microsoft. Microsoft had, was much more public about their their consumer experience tools and the and the like. Just and to just to clarify, Doctor Watson is the technology inside Windows that it was a Windows crash, monitoring tools. So it, yeah, when he had a can, crash, it would send feedback back to Microsoft, so they could yeah. they were making sure they were addressing the most common problems, right? And so here's a bunch of RDs and MVPs and so forth sitting in a room with Steven Sadowski, who's talking about this, and he, and we're talking about. IE8. And he goes, how many people here use bookmarks in your browser? The whole room puts up his hand, right? I mean, because we're all tech folks, we use bookmarks, right? Especially in that era. And he said, and he goes, here's the telemetry on IE8 around the world. 2% of the market uses bookmarks. 98% of IE, of in-use IE8 installations have zero bookmarks. And he said, now, what do you think I'm going to do for IE9? And, and he says, I'm not going to work on the bookmark component at all. Which, by the way, they didn't. It's exactly the same component in IE9 that was in IE8. Is that when Bing showed up? Because obviously the answer to no bookmarks is a better search engine. Well, theoretically. But re- the point was, who needs a better bookmark engine? Because most people aren't using it. But, right. and his, but the point that Sanofi was making is, if I listen to influencers, I work on these minority features. Right. Sure. Although I will say that if you don't have enough data, a small number of people using it can be, can be misunderstood as the feature is somehow bad. Yeah. Uh, there's an alternate interpretation, which is discoverability is non-existent. Right. True. Or the, the feature is maybe needs a little bit of tweaking. Right. Or it's, or it's it got a high cliff. It's very hard to use. And so advanced, it's very powerful, but you need to be very sophisticated to use it in the first place. Yeah. So I, I, I always get a little, little nervous when people are like, you know, numbers are low. Let's just kill it. Ditch it. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm like, yeah, hold on. Let's Google. Look, <laughs> let's look deeply at it. Wait, what'd you say? Oh, it's see Google. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I'm always like, let's take a closer look and make sure it's really what we think it is. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he, and then, and I agree with you that that Sanofsky's interpretation was I I think it was deliberately inflammatory for this audience for that audience. It was to say 
do not think you're my customer just because you're an influencer, mm. yeah. which I think is a fair statement, right? And it's, mm, it is wow. easy to get caught up in the loudest voices. You have to, to take a broader view. But your reaction to that you know, should, be, should be subjective. Like, I really appreciate the idea that you're saying here is like bookmarks could be easier. You know, maybe you could be, you know, you could build better tooling around them, encourage people to use them more effectively. Uh, but but it, it speaks to the mind, too, of there are folks out there that really want data. And these days, Microsoft is very data driven. You know, it, and I'll, I'll put that at the feet of, of Scott Guthrie. Scott Guthrie chants that all of the time internally. It's like, you, you know, bring customer data to any meeting where you're talking about features. So .NET Core... 1.0 came out in 2016 and that was their really their first attempt uh to go open source right with .net and so let's talk about what happened between 2012 and 2016 that arguably gave .net uh a second chance at life well i mean the the you talk about what's happened between build 2011 when we walked out of the building wondering if .NET rocked and build 2012 because everything changed by build 2012, right? And they and they and the bottom line was the bulk of the apps for Windows 8 in the in the Windows App Store were C sharp XAML, right? It was like seventy percent, right? So and, uh, that's what you get when you foster a community like .NET. Developers. Well, and plus there was that huge drive to get apps into the store. You remember right. at the time, right? Yep, you go yep. back and look at, you could see it on .NET Rocks, right? Mm. That at that, in that time period, we had shows over and over again about how to build apps for Windows 8 because there were so many people that were working on it. There was so much energy to fill the stores up with apps by the time Windows 8 shipped. And half of them were at Lee Hunter. Well, yeah, you know, that's, you know, you're exactly right. And there was, you know, part of that push was there was some pretty dumb stuff put in the store too. Right. right? Yeah. Like they, they had, they put so much pressure on the evangelist, on the, 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 um, influencer organizations to make apps meet. It's like everybody had a quota of apps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, you know, folks were cheating left, right, and center. But the bottom line was the culture, you know, the folks that were to actually respond to that. C sharp XAML developers, and that's mm. what filled the store, and it, it it put paid to this idea. I mean, there's a few things that went wrong with Windows eight. Not, and it's not only one small part of that is the product. Mm -hmm. You know, it starts with people deciding on an operating system. The bulk of the sales that Microsoft's going to make for an operating system are enterprise, and enterprise people don't like surprises. No. If you want to sell, you want them to consume a product, you get them involved pretty early on. It's in your best interest when you launch a product to have a bunch of enterprise folks on the on the, the stage with you because they've been part of the beta program and they've already got it in the field, right? And people feel more comfortable and says, and Boeing's got a has had ten thousand seats running on this for the past four months and they're had success. Like those are all the metrics that sell a product like that. And Apple's mo was to have an unveiling. But they're right. also and they didn't talk about a product. product, right? Right. Yeah, you're right. But but you know this is oh well, Apple can keep a secret until they unveil things. Let's do that with Windows eight. Yeah, there's a there were there were a number. I'm sorry, there's a number of attempts I think to kind of mimic what Apple was doing, and but I felt like they were they were 
I don't know if this is fair to say or not, but I'll tell you what, this is how I felt. I felt like they were led by people who didn't actually understand what Apple was doing, hmm. right? If you look at the Windows 8 start screen, it's got all of these, It's all of this color is used all over the place for all of these icons. All the icons have different colors. Then they've effectively taken color away as a means of, of communication right. in their start screen. And they even, even the background was brightly saturated, as I recall. Yeah, and so, and so you're like, this idea of saturation having meaning is gone. It's the equivalent of overloading your brain with noise, right? Mm. But from, I think, their internal perspective, it felt like they were saying, well, this looks just like what Apple's doing. They've got icons all over the place, things like that. We've got a, we've got an app store just like Apple has. We're, we're pushing to fill it up. We got the numbers are matching. The things kind of look similar, but it feels like it was without a fundamental understanding as to what was yeah, actually it, happening it and why it was successful. Cults, right? Have you ever Say heard again? the term cargo cult? I don't yeah. think so. So cargo cult comes from World War II when during during the Battle of the Pacific, the, the Americans and the Japanese, when they were hopping from island to island through New Guinea, and so they'd land on these islands with the native population that 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 were there that were you know largely non technical population. And they, you know, the CBs would show up. They cut an airfield in the in the jungle so that they could stage resources. And so this huge amount of wealth poured into these islands during the war, uh, you know, with aircraft and so forth, bringing in supplies and and so on. And they did their best. You know, they would the 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 local population would reap some benefit from this. They'd get chocolate and food and things like that. Then the war ended and everybody left. And uh, folks found the the the, fo the native population was like, well, for a while there, there were these things going on, and food would come out of the sky. So let's they started building airplanes out of wood. Not that they could fly, but they looked like an airplane. Like they would do the rituals that had been taking place during the time when the when the cargo would arrive. They were right. cargo cults. Classic mythology. Well, it's, yeah. It's, I, I don't understand what was going on, but I appreciated the benefits from it, so I try and replicate it without understanding. Mm. Yeah, and that's what I that's what I that's what I saw in 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 Windows Eight at the time. I I just remember also in the first iterations of Windows Phone, similar problems, right, where there were like you know sharp corners all together with high contrast on areas that you weren't actually supposed to look at, and low contrast on areas where you were supposed to look at, like number of messages that you get in, things like that. Right. And the and the early release of the Windows phone, it, it people were like, uh, I remember having a conversation with an evangelist and he's like, look at how great this is. And I'm shaking my head. It's not. And it's not the same. It's not the same as something that's that that's carefully designed. Yeah. So I just that's what I felt. I felt like it was it was there was a lot of people who were signing off on things. were missing a fundamental understanding of what it was they were actually missing. What they the didn't Windows have. Phone UI could have been better with color and contrast. I give you that, but the the whole contact centric way that it worked to me was so much easier than having a, a a message screen and a phone screen and a contact screen and a this screen and a that screen. Depending on what you want to do, you go there and then you look up the contact you want to talk to or whatever. And you know what I mean? It, it just made so much more sense. I want to find, I want to talk to this person and then I get all of the options of what I can do for them. I don't know. That, that made a lot of sense to me. But anyway, let's talk about how the renaissance of .NET happened after all of this. Richard? 
we we did the. Do you remember the show we did in at NDC London when it was still in the Docklands, which means it really should be called NDC Docklands because that's most <laughs> NDC East Japipi London. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, with with Mads when Mads was there, and he was yeah. talking about working on .NET Core and Roslyn and being open source cross platform and this sort of. They and they were they were fighting hard to get to that parity point that, that all the features in C sharp and implemented core had the things and we talked about this idea of a a Cambrian explosion like you have set the stage in 2016 you've set the stage now so that you can innovate on this language in an entirely different way mm-hmm. because I mean the reason they did Roslyn when they finally did Roslyn was that it was costing them too much to not do Roslyn. Right. I mean, there is a fundamental philosophy that no language is truly mature until you can write a compiler for your language in your language, mm. which is very an inception-y, but that should have happened in 2005 and it didn't. And by that time, they were so, they had so much of a code base built up, they couldn't afford to do it. The real reason Rosalind finally got written was that they were now stuck writing the compiler twice, once for the compiler and once for Visual Studio to do IntelliSense, mm. right? That it had to be able to parse .NET code to be able to give you the correct squiggly lines. And that, you know, the what finally got them the budget to redo C Sharp in C Sharp as the Roslyn project was to that they were, the cost made sense because they were already doing everything twice. Mm. But that recreation of, and clean up of C sharp, clearing off its baggage so you could work in C sharp, really open the doors. I'd also say this, throw one more thing on top of that. The consequences of that was a huge number of C sharp developers that worked for Microsoft because before then they were C developers. Well, Dustin Campbell went to work for Microsoft, right? And didn't he work on the Rosalind team? Or does he still? Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he did. And, you know, it's interesting because the if you look at from my perspective, when I think of Roslyn, I think of the ability to ask the IDE about the language, mm. right? Ask it questions so that I can refactor uh, and add, add tooling onto it. Um, for years before Roslyn was built, Microsoft wanted to add that feature in. In fact, at one point, they believed it wasn't possible. And I remember being at Microsoft in like just a room full of people. And it's not, a, you know, we did a show where we were talking about thinking way outside the box, mm-hmm. you know, on .NET Rocks. Mm-hmm. But I remember being in the room, and this is not unusual for me, where everybody in the room is saying, Mark, it's impossible to do <laughs> what you're describing. And I'm like, no, it's not. And, right. you know, I'm, and, I'm, and at that point, we were talking about having essentially a universal uh, way of representing all languages essentially right. is what we were talking about. At the very least, we were talking about uh, representing XAML, C-sharp, and Visual Basic in the room. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were talking about, you can't do it. And I was like, no, you can't. Well, what about this? No, here's how you solve that. And what about this? Well, here's how you solve that. At a structural level, right, if you go down and you look at, 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 uh, at least all the languages we're talking about, including XAML, there's a structural component to it, right, that's common among everything. Right, mm-hmm. a kind of parent-child relationship that exists in XAML, exists in C Sharp, exists in Visual Basic, uh, and and what we had created in Code Rush up to that point was unique in that we were actually parsing into this kind of universal format. Mm. And so when we wrote a refactoring, we wrote it once, and it would work in Visual Basic and work in C Sharp. 
And Microsoft knew we were doing that. We, especially when Dustin was on board, they knew that we had done that, how we had solved that. And I think that Dustin coming on board to some degree, and 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 again, I think Code Rush put pressure on the team to solve it. In fact, you know, they had been talking to us for years, saying, "If we do this, will you then adopt it, the engine, and use mm. it?" And we would say, no, it's not enough. No, it's not enough. No, it's not enough. Mm. But finally, when they came out with Rosalind, they said, and when Rosalind came out, we looked at it and we said, hey, that is enough for us to abandon what we're doing and now rely upon Microsoft, Visual Studio team. The cool mm. thing about that from our perspective is we didn't have to write or worry about that anymore. And for free, we would get all the updated changes as the language changed. Yeah. Whereas in the old days, we had to catch up. That whole that whole time. Well, you know, Rosin predates .NET Core, right? The yep. the project had actually been around for quite a while, and in fact, it was floating on Coplex. It ended up, you know, this is before Microsoft really understood open source, and the legal teams created, you know, not a non trivial number of problems around all of this. Hmm. Do you remember there was a period, and we actually explained this on .NET Rocks, where you couldn't include Roslyn with your project. You had to have the the user download Roslyn. To, for the, the uh, based on the go live license, so you could get Rosalind from Coplex, but it wasn't a supported product, and it couldn't be bundled with anything. And that was pure legal mumbo jumbo. They didn't understand how open source licensing would work, and and mm -hmm. you know would create these barriers around all of that. But inside of Microsoft, there was a discussion about open source was clearly coming, right? And, and pieces had happened. Even by then, by 2010. Uh, you know, one of the breakthrough moments for me was the fact that jQuery was included in the box in Studio 2010, mm. which is an open source product that Microsoft mm -hmm. was now including in their retail product uh, and supporting. You could get tech support from Microsoft for jQuery. Uh, and that, you know, it was a hugely stressful moment. And I bring that up because this open source conversation, like why did they make .NET Core? What was the tipping point? for all of that. Right. And it was that uh, there was pressure on to, to make open source. They were starting to make open source solutions. They created MS OpenTech, this separate group that was making sure that open source projects uh, that were out there worked well with .NET, yeah. but also was a place for them to start open sourcing code. And so new things that were being built could be open source. You know, M MVC had always been open source through Cloudplex. Right. Then Entity Framework decided to go open source. Now, Entity Framework had shipped several versions as a closed source product. And that meant, you know, this is the thing that a lot of folks don't understand and why I end up doing talks around this. When you're a closed source project at Microsoft, it's not just that the source code is closed. It's that it's covered in patents. You know, yep. Part of your job as a developer at Microsoft is to file patents on innovations within the things you've worked on. And those patents have some value to them, and they can't just be thrown out. You can't treat them willy-nilly, or you put yourself in a situation where uh, you threaten all of your patents. Hmm. And so the Entity Framework team had decided, had realized that it was in their best interest to be open source, and they pressed against it. In the end, it was Soma Segar, who at that time run the de developer division, to open source Entity Framework. And so they went through, they reviewed all of the patents that were currently held in Entity Framework, and either... Decided to to give them up to 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 release them or throw them mm -hmm. out. Essentially, uh, in some cases, they even rewrote. They, they said the patents were valuable and rewrote the code in Entity Framework to no longer fit with the patent, which is messed up if you think about it for a moment. Right, right. So you wrote this code so cool, you filed a patent on it, 
and got the patent. And now you're going to rewrite the code to not conflict with the patent. Really? That's awesome. Anyway, it took him six months to get to the bottom of that. And and in, we didn't see this. Okay. What we saw was one day they announced that any framework was open source. Hmm. Ta-da. But the lightning bolt was inside of Microsoft because until the open source movement was coming. That was clearly true, right? And so there were teams that were like, we're going to start Greenfield things and we're going to start them in open source. We're going to work it through Coplex like this is what they're going to do. The idea that an existing product could be open source was simply not on the table until the Entity Framework team did it. And then other teams are like, you can do that? And then they went to the Entity Framework team and said, what do we have to do to do that? And they explained the insanity of what they'd gone through to do it. And they said, well, that's stupid. we got to make this easier. And it opened the door to simplifying the process. So now let's talk about .NET Framework, which at this point is 10 years old. And there's a huge amount of code written by literally thousands of people and licensed code from other sources. Like it's an incredibly complex thing and it makes perfect sense to open source, except there's no way. It's not going to be six months to unentangle that. And they literally did the math and said, it would be easier to write this over again than it would be to try and unentangle all this code. Plus, this was the bigger pressure. We don't just want to open source this but we want to cross-platform it. We want it to run on other platforms. And an awful lot of the .NET framework code was written for Windows. Windows, yep. Right, plain and simple. I mean, it's, why did ASP.NET Web Forms not make it? Because fundamentally, ASP.Web Forms is an ISAPI filter bound to IIS and Windows. It's not yep. portable. It's just there's no way you could make that make sense on another platform. You got to bring Azure into this too because – Azure was where they saw their their future revenue coming from. The majority that's actually of their a little revenue. further down the path, but you're you're not wrong that in the fallout of Windows 8, in the sort of disaster that was Windows 8, was this recognition of it doesn't make the you know one would argue when did the operating system become irrelevant? Like that's the question. Not that they stopped dominating, but that it didn't matter. That, that the customer expects what – I don't care what the operating system is. I expect everything to just run. It's just like BIOS. Like, do you care that you have a Phoenix BIOS, you know, versus a Columbia BIOS? Or, you know, you don't care. It's, right. You're expected to work. If it doesn't work, it's not a viable product. I won't buy it. It yeah. just works. We no longer care what operating system you work in. You're expected to just work. Yeah. So, you know, when did operating systems actually be expected to just work? I would argue as far back as Vista. At – that party at Tim Huckabee's house before build, the the Sanofsky build, right. eight, we went around and we asked people what they thought they were going to see tomorrow at build. You know, what what's going to be the big announcement? Because this was the first time that we had no idea. And I remember Atlee Hunter saying, by Windows 9, Windows will be completely free. And, you know, it wasn't exactly right. No, but he was pretty it's much right. Your, but pretty <laughs> much to your point, though. That, uh, you know, nobody has to pay for Windows pretty much anymore. Well, the enterprise does, right? Yeah, and and Windows 10, you remember the announcement in 2014 was that if the screen is smaller than 9 inches, Windows yep. 10 is free. So the 9 kind of had something to do with that. Well, there was no 9, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> cause it conflicted with 9.5, 9.8, 9.8 SE. That's why they didn't use 9. I don't know what that create. means, but okay. 
Well, versioning numbers. Oh, okay. It's going to create a problem with versioning numbers, which is why they skipped nine. That and Mac was coming out with ten, and they didn't want to be number behind Mac. Uh, yeah, okay. There's still some. Uh, there's still some serious Apple envy inside of Microsoft. Like, why is Windows 11 exist? Windows 10 was supposed to be the last version of Windows. Right. Well, Mac decided to make a Mac OS 11. So anyway, uh, <laughs> we should say that uh, you know, uh, from the dark years emerges a Jedi. And his name is Sachin Adela. So uh, one can't underestimate the impact that he had on the I, whole I, ecosystem. You know, they, Steve Ballmer knew that the company would have to bet on cloud. And he knew that he was an obstacle to that, ultimately. Right? I mean, it did come to this, balance, this, this tipping point where uh, Ballmer had been entrenched in a particular approach for so long that it was – it was going to take longer to rehabilitate his image and approach than it would be to put a new CEO in place. You can't say developers enough to make something happen. Well, but you also, it's like they're Windows developers, right? Like they, that was the point. Yeah. So it's not like Satya took control and changed the course of the company. The company was already pivoting. It was pivoting towards the cloud. Mm. And it was useful. It was smart to have a new leader for that. To me, the bigger thing that Satya did was shifted the culture. Yes. The product space was still already obvious, right? That that was already, that had happened, but the- He embraced the old, Linux. Well, the old, yes. And now again, it was, it was Bomber who said Linux is a cancer, right? It's like, yeah. you, you got that whole rehabilitation part, but also that there, there was a somewhat adversarial culture inside of Microsoft. Remember the great diagram with the guns? Oh, yeah. You know? That's Bomber's Microsoft. Sitting around a meeting table with pointing gun at each other. Yes. Well, it was the, you know, the, the, a guy, I, I'd have to go look up the graph again and I, I, I would want to, to reference the artist correctly. Yeah. Uh, but he drawn like Apple as dot in the center, everything around it, right? Like all yeah. things flow through jobs. But in the, in the Microsoft, because Microsoft is such a diverse company, makes so many products, has all these different islands that are as much in competition with each other than they are. Um, with themselves, right? He, mm. he, it was he, Bill's world was a Socratic world where best ideas won. Steve's world, the best, the the most politically savvy one, and that became very hard for the company. Yeah. And uh, and Satch's rule was: there's one Microsoft, and you don't fight with each other. Like that's not how you do things. And and you, it took a while. It's taken a while. I mean, here we are in 2022, but it's a kinder, gentler Microsoft. So obviously, embracing Linux was good for Azure because they can offer more low-cost services than running Windows uh, on the back end. Well, you, to this day, have, right? If, you've got, yeah. if you're working in core, which, of course, we, in theory, we all are, you're yeah. able to implement and run on any operating system you want. If you try it, yep. run on a Win, Win instance in, in Azure and look at your bill for the month and run the same thing on the same load on Linux, and you'll save about 30%. Right, and it's going to work just fine. Theory, yeah. Well, it is. I mean, there is. You don't hear about issues between Windows and Linux services running uh, core. Yeah, on Azure. depends on how it's implemented. You can do stuff that is still Windows dependent if you if you do it that way. And, yeah, and there are there are some the differences under there. So it's always the brownfields that have migrated to core and then try and and then push up and then run into. It can't. You can run into issues. So, Mark, before we uh, jump off here, because we've arrived at the end of the story. How did that uh, embrace of open source affect DevExpress as far as your perception is? 
Um, yeah, I don't think it affected us. Well, I, I think from the standpoint of being developers, like on a team, uh, I know I was looking at that with some envy, right? And I was asking internally, could we do the same thing for Code Rush? Mm. Um, I've actually been rethinking that again. I've re-entered that whole mindset again in the last couple of weeks. I've been thinking, I am really leaning towards an open source of, of Code Rush. Um, but but I you know I think that was the the impact of it, right? The impact was is that it kind of it you know you 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 see that there's a ton of benefits that they're gaining from doing this, mm. right? And I think among those are quality, right? They're getting more quality reports in, and uh, I think they're they're getting more community involvement, community in feedback, as well. yeah, yep. right, exactly. And I think those are incredibly valuable. Right. And I think it, it, I think there's another piece to it as well, is that if you as a developer know that what you're creating is going to be scrutinized by looked at by thousands of developers, uh, I think you work a little harder. You focus yep. a little more. You make sure that before Agree. you check in. Right. Not only are all the tests passing, but it's like code that you would be you know, proud of or at least comfortable with having your name on. It's what you said at the beginning right. of the show. You know, you're going to comment it well because you don't want to get emails and calls from developers who don't understand what a line of code does. Yeah. yeah. So I think that from from that standpoint, you know, we were already releasing the code for all of our controls. It was just Code Rush was the one that we weren't doing that yeah. for, right? So yeah, I I think from my perspective, I I have I I am envious of the benefits they're gaining from that decision. Mm. And it's something that I would I am would definitely move towards, but we have a few licensed things as well that would need to be unraveled. Uh, right? I we see. were talking about that earlier. Yeah. So Yeah, well that's where we are in 2022. We have this amazing platform that goes everywhere and uh, new tools like um, Blazor, which I think is the future of .net web technology if I may be so bold, and uh, in terms of, you know, dominance eventually. And uh, Maui, you know, which is just, uh, it's a hard problem, uh, that cross-platform. But everything that I've seen so far points to the logical evolution of Xamarin Forms and uh, and the experience of developing a Maui application in 2022 is so different from all those years of Xamarin Forms development would that have been just painful in terms of, uh, you know, your, your, your platform, your base, just getting your platform up to speed. I remember in Richard remembers this doing, um, uh, workshops in Xamarin forms at Dev Intersection of all places. And, uh, the first half of the day is dedicated to just getting people who brought their laptops to hello world. That, that's how long it took just to make sure because system running. Just yeah. because there's so many moving parts and Microsoft did some of it in Visual Studio, but you had to go get the JDK and you had to have this and that. And yeah, it was just tough. So I'm, I'm very, very happy where we landed and I'm excited about the future. Hey, speaking of future, can we do like another show in about 20 years, like uh, 2042? Sure. Can we do that? Can you, <laughs> is it too early to send a calendar invite out to you guys? Dynad rocks the geriatric show. In a nursing home. Well, here I'll we are you. in yeah, episode thirty-eight fifty. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when. Oh, those whippersnappers! 
Well, guys, this has been great fun, and uh, I'm glad we got the, the .NET Show audience involved. And if you don't know what that is and you're listening to .NET Rocks, go to the .NET Show.com. That's a video show that I do that's uh, presented by DevExpress. Thank you very much, DevExpress. Uh, and uh, check out the good stuff. It's forward-looking and fun. And that's it. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks so much. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.